You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. I've had to wear glasses since I was a kid. I remember fighting it when I was a little guy in elementary school, and every year I had to sit closer and closer to the front row, and then I was on the front row and I still couldn't see, so I knew I needed glasses and I had to give in to it. It was, it was a terrible thing, but I've had them ever since. And I have to go and have my eyes examined every once in a while. I suppose you've had the experience. You sit on a chair, and my friend, the optometrist, pulls this strange binocular-like contraption in front of you and puts it down, and I squint through and see some fuzzy things on the screen behind. And Dr. Bach says, "Um, what do you see? And I squint harder. I say, I I think it's a Z. Oh, maybe it's an S. Um, A B? No, I think it's a 2. And then, then he starts flipping these little things and he says, um, the first one or the second one, which is clear, this one or that one. And suddenly I realize I've been looking at an E. And the blur is gone and I can clearly see. And in a nutshell, if you were to go home right now, that's the message of the scripture this morning. It's beginning to experience a clear vision of what Jesus is all about. Now, not only a clear vision, as the blind man experienced, but clear spiritual vision. The disciples are blurry in their uh, understanding of who Jesus is. And not only are they blurry, they're actually blind as to what the mission of Jesus is, that he would be crucified. And they were certainly blind as to what it involved in following him. They had this idea of sitting on his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom when he came in his glory. They had no idea what lay ahead. They were blind. So if you turn in your Bibles this morning to the passage we read in Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at that passage together. And actually, the tension in the passage begins in a few verses we looked at last week. Matthew 8 and verse 18 says this, Jesus said, having eyes do you not see? Mark 21, he says, do you not yet understand? Now, this section of Scripture now continues with a rather unusual healing of a blind man. The healing occurs near the little village of Bethsaida on the north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing community where Peter and and John came from, and it was at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Let's look at the passage and read it together. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 22. And when Jesus came to Bethsaida... And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, there's two aspects of this healing story that really jump out to me. And the first is this, the method of the healing. The blind man's friends bring him to Jesus because they want Jesus to touch him. Now, perhaps his friends had seen Jesus touch other people and heal them, or perhaps they had heard that this man, Jesus, could touch people and heal them. But whatever the case, they bring the blind man, they lead him to Jesus near this little village of Bethsaida. And indeed, Jesus touches him. But then Jesus does something else. 
he spits in his face. He spits in his eyes. And I say, really? Is, is, is that what it really says? Oh, it can't really mean that, can it? Well, I don't know. Some of the scholars explain that they had this belief that saliva was believed to have some healing properties. Mm, perhaps that's true. But what would you think if someone spat in your face? What would you think if Jesus spat on your eyes? I noticed I wasn't supposed to be reading it. I noticed in my news feed, oh no, I didn't do much social media. Um, I noticed on my news feed, there was a story this week came out of the Toronto subway system. And there was a whole charge and going to be a court case on it. Some dear soul was sitting on the subway and someone came along and spat in their face. So was spitting in people's face different in those days? Well, I don't think there's any evidence of that. In fact, if you look over in Mark, Mark chapter 15 and verse 19, you'll discover that when they wanted to really insult Jesus when they were mocking him, what did they do? They spat on him. So what is this all about? Is it meant to be shocking? Is it meant to capture attention? I think so. And doesn't it reinforce the authenticity of the story? Why would Mark include such a weird detail if it didn't actually happen? Perhaps Jesus meant to shock. And for the disciples, there were much greater shocks to come. Now, the second thing that jumps out about this healing is the fact it's a two-staged healing. And it's the only two-staged healing of Jesus that's recorded in the gospel. First, the man has this partial healing of his sight. I can see, but everything's out of focus. Is it an S or a Z? Is it a 2 or maybe it's a B? I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus gives him a second touch, and everything is clear. From blindness to blurriness to clear sight. This was the experience of the blind man at Bethsaida. And this was what the disciples needed to experience. They would begin to understand, to clearly see, to clearly see who Jesus was, his identity. To clearly see what he had come to do, his mission. And to clearly see what it meant to follow him. The first area where the disciples needed this clear vision was on this issue of identity. So turn with me just down a few verses there to Mark 8, verse 27. And in this passage, the, the, the disciples for the first time in Mark's gospel clearly identify who Jesus is. For the first time, they see it, they get it. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others said Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. Caesarea Philippi, I think we have a picture off it there. It's a beautiful and remote area of Israel, way in the north, just up by the Lebanon and Syrian border. And uh, it's right in the, uh, the shadow of Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon as they call it which is a mountain 10,000 feet high. I, when we were in Israel, I hadn't really expected to see this huge mountain that was snow-covered. And I didn't understand that the only mountain ski resorts, if you want to go somewhere, you don't want to go to Whistler, you want to go somewhere crazy, you go skiing at Mount Hermon. There's a ski resort there. 
Uh, the headwaters of the Jordan River are there. It was a place of pagan worship in days gone by. There was a, a temple there to Pan, who was the god of nature. It's still actually a beautiful place today, even in ruins. I'm getting a little snack there as we went for a hike. Um, Sharon and I had an opportunity to hike through the hills. We parked our car down at, at the falls at Banias and hiked up about a kilometer. Um, we stayed on the trail, Devon, because it was an area where there was uh, mining um, during the 67 war. And every once in a while, still cows are wandering around, and there's a big boom, and that's the end of the cow. So it's, you know, it's, it's a whole lot more effective than saying no trespassing, danger, mines. This is where, it's, I found it fascinating. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And uh, Mount Hermon is the source of that water, which supplies the entire country. And Mount Hermon is, or Hermon is a, a, a limestone hill, but at the base it's basalt, or lava rock. And so the, the melting snow water percolates down through the mountain, and then it kind of seeps out on the right there at the bottom, just as little leaks coming out. And then within about uh, a kilometer downstream, you have this raging torrent. Um, it, it was a beautiful place then, it's still a beautiful place today. And it was to this remote place that Jesus comes with his disciples and he deals with his issue of identity. There's two questions here. The first is this. Jesus says to them as they're walking towards that area, who do people say that I am? And the disciples tell what they heard, what they'd picked up on their media feed. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, returned to life. That's what Herod Antipas thought when he felt so guilty for all he had done. One of the other disciples said, some say you're Elijah, the one who's to come before the Messiah. One of the other disciples says, they say you're a prophet. They say you're a great man. But then Jesus gets pointed in his questioning. He gets personal. Do you guys understand who I am? Is your vision blurry or blind? Or do you finally understand who do you say that I am? And Peter, the one who always jumps to the fore, for better or for worse, says, you're the Christ. Now, now Christ, as we've often been told, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's the title in Hebrew, which is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christ. It means the anointed one. It means Peter says, you're the one we're looking for. You're the coming king. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then there's this puzzling little statement where Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. I've always wondered, why does he say that? Well, because if they had started to tell who he was, there would have been riots. There would have been uprisings. Perhaps there would have been this national fervor. And it wasn't his time. In another passage, it says this, his time had not yet come. And for now, the disciples were just to keep it on the low. There would be a day when they could proclaim it. So the disciples are clear about Jesus' identity. But are they clear about what that means? In the ancient view of Israel, Christ the Messiah was to be a conqueror, a hero to bring peace to the nations, to get rid of the dreaded enemy, the Romans. You're clear about my identity, says Jesus. Are you clear about my mission? Let's read Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This verse is actually the pivot point of the whole book of Mark. Up until now, we've been finding out about Jesus, what he did, what he said. And now we reach this point where for the first time, he clearly communicates his mission. 
And from this point onwards, the road leads to Jerusalem and to the cross and to death. This is the pivot point. In two more passages, in Mark 9 and verse 30, Jesus will repeat this mission statement. And again in Mark 10, verse 32, that he is going to suffer. From this point forward, he's heading to Jerusalem. A journey to the cross. From Caesarea Philippi, there's no turning back to the way it once was. He is going forward. Here is the core of Jesus' mission clearly revealed. The Son of Man, he says, which is a title he's taking from Daniel's prophecy, chapter 7. You can look that up later. The Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. These words were like knives into the heart of the disciples. Or, can I use another picture? These words were like spit on the face. They were as shocking as if they'd been spat upon. The Son of Man must suffer. But aren't messiahs to reign and to conquer and to get rid of the enemy? The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, by the scribes. Those were the three groups of people that made up the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish parliament. He must be rejected by the country's leadership. But it's worse than that. Not only must he suffer, not only must he be rejected, he must be killed. Suffer, rejected, killed. For the disciples, this was, this was foggy blurriness. But this is the mission of Jesus. Jesus rejected by those who should have received him. Jesus rejected not by brutish, rough, tough, hell's angels kind of people, but Jesus rejected by respectable people whose hearts were blurred by hate, the leaders of the country. These were good people who crucified Jesus. Such is the darkness of the human heart. Jesus suffering. The great mystery is that in the person of Jesus, God has experienced our suffering. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of things that I don't understand about pain and suffering. There's a lot of things you don't understand about it. It's a great mystery. In fact, I'd like to suggest there's something about it you will never understand. But here's something we do understand. Jesus suffered, and because he suffered, he shares in our suffering. Jesus rejected, Jesus, Jesus suffering. But here's the third thing. Jesus must die. This is the core of the gospel, what the scholars call the kerygma, the basis of the gospel, the mystery of the ages, that the sinless Son of God will die as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinful people that he died for me, and he died for you. And this message is found all through the New Testament. I would exaggerate if I say it's on every page, but it's on many, many pages. It's found over and over again. Listen to St. Paul as he writes the Roman letter. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Writing again to the church in Corinth, he says, and this is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament, probably dates to about AD 50. For I delivered to you, says Paul, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Writing again a second letter to the Corinthians, he says, for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter, when he finally had his spiritual vision, wrote this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the mission of Jesus. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. But thank God he must rise again on the third day. But all of this was just too much for Peter. No, says Peter, this can't happen. This can't happen to you, Jesus. So he takes Jesus aside to correct him. Or the word is to rebuke him, to straighten him out. Look at the verse there, Math, or Mark 8, verse 32. Peter says to him, lost my verse. There it is. Uh, Mark 8 verse 32, and he said plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning to his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. This is, this is a little bit like a first year student in calculus at university puts up his hand, and even though the professor wrote the book on calculus, the young student who knows very little says, professor, I would like to straighten you out on a few things to do with calculus, right? It, it, it didn't go over so well. Jesus' response is overwhelming. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Boy, that seems really harsh. What's going on here? Why he's so strong? Peter doesn't mean any harm. He's just saying what he thinks. But in a flash, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness comes before him. In that temptation, Satan had said, if you will only bow down to me, you can avoid suffering. And suddenly Peter presents that again. Jesus, you don't really have to suffer, do you? Even in the voice of a friend, the tempter's message reappears. But Jesus would have no part of it. The Messiah must suffer. His mission was clear. So we have a clear vision of Christ's identity, a clear vision of Christ's mission. Now the question is, if that is Christ's mission, what is ours? Matthew 8, or Mark 8, beginning at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? There is a clear calling for all who would follow Jesus. If the master first walked the path, then all who claim to be his followers are called to walk the same path. There's a principle which follows all through life. As the master, so the servants. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the brave leader of the confessing church in the days of the Nazis, said this, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. There are two key aspects of Christian discipleship that are found in this text. And the first is this. To be a Christian disciple, there's something to let go of. There's something to lose. Jesus said, first, let him deny himself. 
We live in an age where self-denial is seen as folly. The message today is pamper yourself. You deserve it. The message today is express yourself. Practice self-assertion. The message today is be who you are. Your self-autonomy, your self-definition, your self-identity are reality. But the message of Jesus reaching across the ages from then to now is this. Deny yourself. This is a hard message. This is a message we don't like to hear. There are things we need to say yes to in life. And Jesus says there are things we need to say no to. Deny yourself. Learn to doubt your feelings. Learn to question your motives. Actually learn to die to your selfishness. Sometimes, perhaps often, we need to say no to self. A counselor once told the story of how they were encouraging a client to make good choices, good decisions. When this thought-provoking insight broke through in their discussion, and the client said this, you mean they said, I don't have to do what I feel like doing? You mean I don't have to do what I feel like doing? But not only is there something to let go of, secondly, there is something to pick up. Jesus said, let him take up his cross. In the time of Jesus, there was a horrible tradition, a brutal practice by the Roman authorities. When a person was convicted to die by crucifixion, they forced the individual to carry the horizontal crossbeam to their place of execution. What an ultimate shame. So when you saw an individual carrying a crossbeam, they were not weight training. <laughs> they were not cross training. And for sure, they were not out for a stroll. No, when they carried the cross, they were declaring that their old life was over. When we take up the cross, we identify with Christ. Christian discipleship is letting go of the old self. Christian discipleship is identifying with Christ. This morning, we're going to experience a Christian baptism, and this is the most unusual baptism tank I've ever seen, but it's a baptismal tank nonetheless. Baptism is a powerful picture of the principles of Christian discipleship. In baptism, we declare that we are saying no to our self-nature, that in symbol, our old nature is being buried in the water. In baptism, we identify with the sufferings of Christ. As we are immersed, we are in symbol dying with him. And let me tell you something. If you stayed down there, that's exactly what would happen to you. And thirdly, as we come out of the water, we identify with Jesus' resurrection life. That in that symbolic newness of life, we follow Jesus. In baptism, it's a sign of dying to self and experiencing a new life in Christ. Then Jesus makes this very intriguing statement. What I would call the great paradox of the Christian life. Mark 8 verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. This is a call to live boldly for Jesus Christ in that age and in our own. This appears to be a contradiction, a paradox but it's a reality. Look within and what do I find? I find despair. Hold on tight and it slowly slips away. But look out 
and let go and truly find life, not only now, but forever. It was Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr, and he was only about 25 years old when he said this. He penned these memorable lines, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In the last paragraph of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis closes his book with these very thought-provoking words. The principle runs all through life, from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you find your real self. Lose your life, and you save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that because he was rejected, because he suffered and died, we can experience forgiveness and life eternal. Give us the courage to believe and obey, to follow no matter the cost, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.